and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by a reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that you and I did with the poet and art critic and so much more, John Yao, about his latest collection of criticism, Please Wait by the Coat Room, Reconsidering Race and Identity in American Art. As you know, like I always turn to you for all things art world um, because I feel like massively underread, if that's the right word for kind of contemporary art or art history. Mm -hmm. But what I really appreciated about John's book is not only is it kind of a window into how money, politics, and race kind of shape what we end up, quote unquote, seeing in the art world, right, through galleries, exhibitions, but also collections at museums. But it was also, for me, an introduction to a laundry list of artists who I had never heard of before and kind of seeing them all couched in John's articulation of this kind of racial reckoning within the art world, I thought was just really, really interesting. So it gave me a narrative to follow. And what I love more than anything else is like new kind of faces and names and work to look at. Yeah, I was introduced to many artists through this collection. And I also felt a license to question certain things in art history that maybe I've never responded to, but just kind of took as, you know, doctrine that what the avant-garde is, what certain aspects of modernism are, you know, what's important, what's not, that painting has its moment or that certain kinds of sculpture have their moment and then their past. John really brings that all into question and doesn't subscribe to a lot of this more like, you know, staid narrative of art history. And um, that as someone who's studied to some degree, art history is so freeing. And suddenly I'm feeling like, oh, I don't have to agree with this. Right. You know, I, it, it gives reading him and his questioning certainly gives me a sense of being able to think what I want and a, a license that I really appreciated. And just, you know, making the case for, you know, certainly I think the book, the essays in the book date as far back to 1988. Mm -hmm. So I think there has been a lot of progress in the art world, especially in recent years of kind of opening up the story of art history and, um, you know, having more artists of color and considering not just formal aspects of an artist's work, but parts of their identity. But John comes at it from such a complex place that it shows there's way more nuanced ways we could be analyzing and thinking about artists' work based on their background. And it's really exciting. Yeah, I agree. So should we dive right into that interview? Let's do it. Thank you so much, John, for being here. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. Yeah, John, so just to start us off, I, I want to look at the essay that kind of frames the whole collection, right? In which you're talking about how biracial experience or biracial identity, you know, the art of biracial subjects remains in so many ways inscrutable for the mainstream art world and the kind of art critics and curators that circulate within it. And I wanted to ask you at first, kind of, is it that these kind of biracial figures and experiences just don't fit into the kind of univocal racial, quote unquote, molds in which we're used to discussing art that isn't produced, let's say, from like a Eurocentric or the perspective basically of white people. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, it 
in life is the notion of identity to have at least two identities or in Mufredo Lam's case, three identities, Afro-Cuban and Chinese. And then he's read, or in my essay, I talked about how he's read as a white artist who doesn't do something that he's derivative. So his whole identity gets ignored. And then as I kept kind of diving deeper into it, I realized, well, this probably happens. This is not an isolated case. Let me think about this. And also America, you know, recently the New York Times did an article posting the 25 or 10 best novelists under a certain age. And as a friend of mine in Texas pointed out, there are only black artists writers and white writers. There were no Asians, no Latinx, no Native Americans. So America sees itself as two colors, black and white, and everyone else gets kind of pushed aside. And then biracially, you get more pushed aside. I'm curious for you, when you first came to New York in the mid-70s, did you immediately start writing about art? Did that come later? And uh, when you kind of entered the art world, how did you see your identity coming into play? The fact that you're also biracial, you mentioned, was that something that you ignored at first? Was that always a part of your writing and perspective? Did you have to kind of ease into that? So I moved to New York around 1975. I studied with John Ashbury at Brooklyn College. He had just gotten the job. I thought you'd need millions of people applying. And- I found out he had to take everyone who applied. And so we took the same subway back to Manhattan. And at one point I said to him, I'd like to learn how to write about art. Could you teach me? And he said, I I can't teach you anything. Send something to Art America. Which, of course, I thought meant don't send anything to Art America because they're not going to listen to me. And then a week later on the same subway, he said, have you sent anything to Art America? Eventually, I sent something, and they took about a year to a year and a half to respond to me. So I'm imagining that John Ashby called up the editor, Betsy Baker, more than once to get her to finally come around to accepting me. And then for about the first two years, they only let me write about people no one else wanted to write about. So I was like on the bench, as they say in baseball or the minor leagues, I don't know. Anyway, I kind of eased into it. I I think in the beginning, I was just trying to see if I could write for Art in America. And I didn't have a phone, so I had to call from a phone booth. It was pretty horrible because I'd be pumping dimes in if they put me on hold. And I just would write about anybody they asked me to write about. I didn't think about, is this a good art? I just, I'm going to learn how to do this. And slowly, I kind of took that as a way to learn about art, to see lots of shows. And slowly, I kind of became more interested in my own interests, so to speak. But my own interests had to be put on the back burner while I adjusted to the situation. So was the Wilfredo Lamb piece really the first time that you were having these thoughts or that you were writing about these things? Was that the first time you addressed kind of the myopic nature of? I think I 
There's an earlier piece I wrote on Louise Cruz Azaceta, I believe. There are a few pieces that slowly I started to think, hmm, what's going on? And then when I looked at the law, I saw it right when I first got to New York. But then I started reading everything I could about him and realized what was being said about him. And that sort of opened the door for me to really walk through. Maybe just tell us a little bit more about him as an artist and how he was framed in this show at MoMA that you saw. Okay, so he was born in Cuba. His father was Chinese. His mother was Afro-Cuban, the descendant of a slave, enslaved person. He's raised as a Yoruba by his grandmother. So he witnesses Santeria religious ceremonies. He participates in them. Eventually, he goes to Spain to study. He fights in the Spanish Civil War. He ends up in Paris, and he meets Picasso. And Picasso considers him like a brother. And then he comes back to Cuba through Martinique, where he meets Aimé Césaire who would then come up with the term negritude. And that changes him or affects and influences him. When he gets back to Cuba, he says, I don't want to make tourist art. And he paints this painting, The Jungle. There are no jungles in Cuba. He paints the painting, The Jungle, on paper. And so it's immediately seen as secondary because it's not on canvas. But there was no canvas in Cuba in 1943 because it was all used to put sugar to transport to England, Europe for the war. And then they see the paint, everybody sees the painting for a long, long time as derivative of Picasso because he's using African masks, which he doesn't alter. Picasso alters the African mask the minute he takes it into his art, i.e. appropriation. And my feeling is why didn't he alter these masks? Why did he preserve them? It's not lack of creativity, and it's because he wanted to preserve the thing that he grew up with, that he felt, you know, strongly about. And that's why I think he gets seen in a certain way as being derivative, and he's not derivative. He's trying to reappropriate something that was already taken from him by Picasso and others. I mean, they at one point... In the William Rubin in an entry says he's the first surrealist to use ethnic sources. Well, really, he's using autobiographical sources. It's not ethnic, you know, and I think that's really the minute I read that, I went, what? There's something wrong with this reading. And that's when it really just started to make sense to me what I had to do. I mean, John, you know, as I I read it, almost all of these essays, you know, I kept thinking a lot about, and again, this is showing the limitation of my own reading, but I was thinking a lot about art criticism from Paul Gilroy and Stuart Hall that kind of addresses this question of, in their work, it's about diaspora, right, that produces hybridity, not just in identity, but also in art forms and genre and all of those kind of things. And when I was reading specifically your essay about Jiha Moon's paintings, you kind of reflect on how that hybridity produced at the intersection of racial and other identities 
produces something that you term an amalgamation of Eastern and Western sources that can't be easily taken apart, but rather which creates and produces something fresh from the unpredictable identity of diaspora. And obviously for Gilroy and Hall, and it sounds like also for you as well, these are modern identities and therefore like art that speaks to very much a contemporary, multiplicitous modern moment. So that seems to me another thing that this kind of let's say, Eurocentric or white-centric art criticism completely misses, not just in like ignoring the archives of all the artists you talk about in your book, but in ignoring the kind of currents that circulate through their work. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, there's a term I was came across recently, transcultural, and it was applied to uh, Matthew Wong because he was born in Canada Chinese parents had come from Hong Kong, but then he lives in Hong Kong, has a studio in China, ends up working in Edmonton, Canada. Where does he belong? Multicultural becomes transcultural. And I think someone like Jiha Moon, I met her when she was in grad school in the University of Iowa. And I remember learning, I didn't know right at that when I met her, that she had already got a graduate degree in Korea. She got undergraduate and graduate, and then she starts all over and comes to America, I think not knowing English that well, and starts all so what that's transcultural as far as I'm concerned, because it's really belonging and being part of two worlds. Once you leave Korea, say, for that long, you stop you're Korean still, but you're not, if you know what I mean. Yes. You are from no place. That's the diaspora condition. Right. And I'm very interested in that sense of no place. And I think Edward Glissant talked about it as being creolization in the local rather than, quote, the universal. And I'm interested in the local and how that might extend beyond the local, so to speak. You know, that also reminds me of your essay about Luis Jimenez's work. And I particularly like this gets it a different way of talking about what's being missed by art criticism and also the way in which art scholars inform the curation of museums and exhibits and everything else that you kind of document. But I loved how you put together Jimenez's End of the Trail with Electric Sunset in conversation with Andy Warhol's Cowboys and Indians. And here we have like a dichotomy between flatness and texture or nuance, right? So Warhol's flat kind of recognition by which you're, you're kind of talking about the way that his work relies on the viewer's ability to easily clock the identity of the celebrity subject that's being represented. But then Jimenez reinterprets or reworks these kind of charged symbols of Americanicity, but also of other Latinx or indigeneity that kind of bring into view, I think, a layered world that most contemporary viewers will be much more familiar with. So it just, all of this is like a prelude to say that it makes, in your analysis, it does make the art world seem incredibly old and like recalcitrant with regard to actually accounting for what modern experience is. And modern, I'm obviously talking about something way longer than just like, you know, the last 20 years. I mean, like the last like 150 years. Right. I think uh, the art world is old in that regard. I mean, I think it's starting to try and catch up and show artists that they overlooked, things like that. But I think in another way, the writing about it is sort of 
It's like a bandage. I still feel like it's a bandage. I think people like Stuart Hall really, they're not accepted. In, you don't see his writings in an American museum, right? You don't see Guy Brett's writings in an American museum. And these people really, when I discovered the writing or other people, I just thought, oh, wait a second. I feel like I'm not alone. I feel like they're writing about artists and I'm not writing about, they're writing about a European situation. That situation is applicable in America with migration. I mean, it's really been going on in America for a long time. And somehow we kind of ignored that. We only pay attention to certain parts of it. Certainly up to maybe the 40s, but after that, it's kind of ignored. We know that Mark Rothko came here. We know Philip Gustin came here. We know the Kooning came here. And then we don't think about it anymore. The minimalists were all born in America, so to speak. And let's not think about this anymore. But it's a complicated subject. Requiring you to learn a lot about other cultures. I mean, there's certainly certain things about some of the artists I wrote about. I had to go study to learn about what was their background and feeling pretty inadequate the whole time, you know, as to how much I could learn and write about and not wanting to say too much. You don't want to like overstate the case. You don't want to ignore it. It seems to me that, you know, there's a, you kind of reference this ignorance or racism in not acknowledging someone's cultural identity, reading them as white. But then there's also this hierarchy that, that gets revealed in the narrative of Western art where other art forms that aren't Western or are craft or kind of indigenous to um, a region or, you know, longstanding practices aren't considered art in the same way. So that if someone engages with them, it's kind of discredited and there's only a certain kind of form of art. And yet someone like Noguchi, you know, his drawing and all these different traditions is what makes him such a powerful artist or a kind of revolutionary artist in a lot of ways. So it's also this very, very, and I'm sure this is changing, you know, now more and more, but it's a very narrow understanding of art history and the kind of square of Western art, that also seems like it's a big part of the problem to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's this notion that painting is dead. So, i.e. craft is dead, that this is a bourgeois activity. But I mean, really, jihad moon using clay, is that really a bourgeois activity? I mean, can you throw that under the bus so quickly? So there's a whole notion that the notion of craft and bourgeois activity, a kind of Marxist reading, is just laid over everything and applied to everybody. And it's not accurate. It's inaccurate. And that gets taught over and over in art schools. And I think in a way, how do you unlearn that if you're an art history student? You have to really unlearn this kind of legacy of formalism with people like Rosalind Krauss, Sal Foster, who are all teaching Ivy League schools et cetera, et cetera. I think there's a whole lot of stuff to kind of react against or undo. And now they're starting to catch up, right? So, you know, now Rosalind Krauss, I guess, reacting against the formalism of Greenberg, decides to write about photography and surrealism, things that Greenberg hated. But I think the issue is more complicated than they were saying. Do you ever see now a flip side of a danger 
of only reading artists of color, their work through their cultural identity. Oh, yeah. That seems like that's a, the flip side of the coin and also equally damaging. Yeah, there's times when I'm writing or thinking about writing where I go, oh, I have to stop here because otherwise you make this person seem like a victim, which I don't want to do. It's about agency. It's not about being a victim. And then how much do you want to read an artist's work through his or her, their life? And then it becomes too reductive. So then there's always this kind of space where I have to go, okay, how far can I go? What am I just being reacting? You know, I mean, I really have to stop myself and say, am I still looking at the art or am I coming up with some kind of trope that's embedded in me that I better not fall back on because it's wrong. So there's that. How do you know what the line is there for you or? I don't know. I, I kind of, <laughs> I kind of come up to it and hope that I see it. I mean, it's, I think it's really the worst thing you can do in art criticism is be wrong. So I do forgive myself and give myself that, okay, maybe the next time I'll say it better. You know, so there's always this notion about certain artists. All right. I said this, can I say that, you know, it's never like what I write is definitive. I mean, the, I just wrote a piece on Martin Wong and uh, Vincent Van Gogh for the Van Gogh Museum. And I've probably written about Martin Wong like six times. And, and I thought, oh, do I have anything else to say? And then writing this piece, I came up with all these things. I thought, why didn't I think of that before? And maybe this disproves some of what I've already said. But I think it's also writing criticism should be a kind of learning process for myself. That's what keeps me engaged and looking. So I think that becomes one of the things. It was a challenge to write about Van Gogh and Martin Wong. I mean, Matthew Wong. There's times I was sure I was going to jump off a bridge. (laughs) In a related way, you know, so much of this book contains your reflections, either going to see a show, going to a gallery opening, going to a new exhibition at a museum. And I kind of wanted to ask you what your experience of doing that is, which you've done probably thousands of times by this point. Kind of how do you enter that space? Do you kind of have things that you're expecting to see or things that you're always looking for? Or do you just go in looking to be moved or pushed by however organically the art kind of does that to you? I just kind of go in and look and without expectation. Well, now you can find out about a lot of shows by looking on the internet. So I do make notes before I go. I kind of, but then I just go and see what's there. And I am surprised. I keep being surprised. I saw a show by, I talked about this in my review of Hannah Lee. I had never heard of her. I walked in and was completely knocked out by the work. So that happens. That's always really gives you a lot of optimism that everyone else is being cynical for many people about the art world, which is a lot to be cynical about. And the other thing I think is at openings, I just try to stand in the corner because I don't really want to socialize. It's not my strong point. (laughs) So, yeah, so that's it. I don't go to openings unless they're of friends. And even then, I don't often go to those openings. 
listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with John Yao, author of Please Wait by the Coat Room. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. First, we have this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have Juana Maria Rodriguez back on the line with us today. Juana is the author most recently of Puta Life, Seeing Latinas, Working Sex. But she joins us today for this week's book recommendation. So Juana, what book are you recommending? My book recommendation is the book that I would take on a desert island, a book that I have read innumerable times. That book is A Lover's Discourse by Roland Barthes. Oh, love, love. Of course. It is just your primer for all of... Amores y desamores, love and the undoing of love, just a way to reveal how incredibly extraordinary and also fully ordinary love can be. So that's my recommendation. Okay, so let me ask you, I have looked back at my copy of Bart's A Lover's Discourse, and I am always both embarrassed and touched when I look at my marginalia <laughs> and how it has changed based on both my own experiences with love and the gulf between readings, but also just how endlessly interpretable and generative those, let's call them like scenes are that he creates in the book. I mean, is that your experience? Is there like a younger version of Juana that has like a completely different way of relating to several of these like scenes? You know, I think... This Juana keeps finding new loves and new lovers. And so I think there's a wonderful way in which love always seems both very new and very old. And Roland just gives those lessons. I'm going to read my very favorite. My very favorite is This Can't Go On. Reasonable sentiment. Everything works out, but nothing lasts. Amorous sentiment, nothing works out, but it keeps going on. (laughs) I love that. Oh, it's full of so many quotable quotes. Can you give us the author and title one more time? Roland Barthes, A Lover's Discourse, Fragments. Thank you so much. That has been Juana Maria Rodriguez, author most recently of Puta Life, Seeing Latinas, Working Sex. listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with John Yao, author of Please Wait by the Coat Room. When you know that you're going to write about a piece, can you just talk to us a little bit? I know there's like a very, there is in some ways, just like in literary criticism, there is like a formal structure to criticism. But I'm curious just kind of how your process works how do you go about like actually writing the criticism? I come home, I turn on my computer and I start writing and I just, uh, it's always the same. I think I know what I'm doing and I fumble around for writing the first paragraph always takes the longest. I just fumble and fumble because I want to get the right tone. I want to say what I feel is the right thing. And I just, 
And sometimes I'm really thinking, I don't really know what I'm writing about. There's no one has written about this artist. I have no idea what I'm saying is could be completely off. There's always that nagging little voice in my head going, God, John, you're so wrong. So I have to trust myself and think, oh, well, maybe I'm not that wrong or I'm not completely out of it. And then I kind of proceed and hopefully it works. I mean, there are times when I have been wrong. I'm not going to tell you when, but I know I've been wrong. (laughs) And I've had to live with it. Think, well, I'll get it right the next time, I hope. So I think, yeah. And with a lot of these, I mean, I try to write about artists, many who have never been written about or have read stuff on them and it seems completely wrong-headed to me. So then how do I alter that or at least introduce a different point of view? That I think is one of my responsibilities. Something that I was moved by in this collection is your essay on Ruth Asawa and what art meant to her and kind of what art was for, for her. And you write that she, you know, used art as a way to engage with the material world and that she was a really dedicated teacher. And it seems to me that also part of this thing is that when we're thinking of, you know, usually it's the male artist, genius, master, it's the individual, it's selling the paintings. And that is just the most typical mode and that we don't often think of all the other uses, non-commercial uses of art, especially in the more establishment mainstream way of talking about it. And that if that changing that could also bring in so much more, much more of a, you know, a group way of thinking about making art or just that that could also be a kind of a form of dismantling of just a really staid system that even with bringing in more artists, you know, lots of the artists you mention in the book now have risen to renown, but it's, you know, now they're just represented by Hauser and Worth and they're kind of plugging in where other maybe white artists were before. And I don't know how much that's changing the overall structure of the art world. That's a five-hour discussion. <laughs> well, Ruth Zhao, like she made those masks of people. She had no desire to sell them. Clay masks, she put them on the outside of her house. Now they've been given to Stanford. There's a lot of art that she had a kind of daily practice of making drawings. Matthew Wong made an ink drawing every morning just after he got out of bed. And this is really a kind of different notion of what art is than this product. And I don't think they were thinking about it in terms of product. The more I think about art, there are artists that do think about art as a product they make that keeps them alive and gives them a certain lifestyle. And I think that those artists have to be looked at more carefully. And I don't think that's been done to the extent that it should be done. And I think Ruth Zhao had a different notion of what a community was. It included her family, friends, and that was the art world. To me, I think in a way, being a poet and knowing about, say, the community of poets in New York City, known as the New York School, say that Joe Brainerd was part of and others, I have that notion of a community in some sense. 
And I think maybe I brought that view into the art world when I started writing about it. And I didn't realize it right away. But the other thing that happened was as a young writer, I was expected because I was a student of John Ashby to write about all the artists that John wrote about, Larry Rivers, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember saying to John once, you're standing in a parking lot. I said, I don't want to write about the artists that you write about. I have to find my own. He said, I think that's a good idea. So that was that. So I, I think he didn't expect me to, you know, follow in his footsteps that he was not that kind of individual. And so I knew, but I think when I blurted it out to him, I knew I had to find my own way. And I didn't know what that meant at all. And it took me some time, I think, to start to figure it out. Also, when I began writing about art, there were not that many Asian artists showing in New York City. Well, it seems like, you know, in one of the essays, you reference this moment where there were, and then it kind of disappeared. Disappeared. And, and what happened, do you think? I think the art world became about money in a certain way, and it just closed down. I mean, you see certain artists, I mean, I would read a lot and I'd find out, oh, all these artists from the Whitney Biennial, but no one knows about them anymore, what happened. So that became something important for me to uncover. Tom Hess says the art world changes, I think in 1965, he claims that everybody used to hang out with each other, at least know about each other, and then one day it changes. He never says why, but I think one of the reasons it changed was because of Robert Skull, the taxi owner. He had a big collection and he put part of it up for auction. And certain art sold for a lot of money. And also he as a collector becomes this figure that decides who gets bought and who doesn't get bought. And so suddenly there is a hierarchy in terms of money. And I think, you know, Think of all the attention paid to collectors these days as if somehow they're important people. Well, they are and they aren't, but no one wants to say collectors are unimportant. Can you imagine Jeff Koons saying collectors are not important? Waiting <laughs> 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 for that moment. I want you to tape it when it happens. <laughs> I think you'll be waiting for a long time for that one. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And Ruth Azawa never said, oh, I don't feel right because I'm not collected. I read once read that Jeff Koons felt really horrible because he didn't get the Whitney Biennial one year. And he felt like Christ had been crucified, like he was being crucified. That's pretty crazy. But she also wasn't a New York artist. Well, right. But she did show in New York and then she she stopped showing in New York because her pieces get too big and the gallery's not big enough ceiling wise and she decides not to change to adjust i mean that's pretty remarkable in and of itself there are artists that do that that's called integrity i'm wondering actually as i hear you talk john about you know whether or not there's just certain factors certain kind of like limiting factors for change in the art world that is about both its the rarefied nature of the art world the kind of commodity aspect of the art world and certainly I would never argue that other forms of media are not commodities as well. But as I was reading, I was kind of struck by the way in which the the hybrid identities that you're talking about and advocating for more exploration and excavation and recognition of in the art world 
has kind of in, let's say, recent years, like the last decade or two, kind of splashed across other, let's say, more popular media. So like particularly film and TV, where I think we get a lot more of those nuanced representations. That doesn't mean that they can't also be pigeonholing in the ways that you warn against. But I think a lot of times we get kind of the, let's say, the experience of queer people of color reflected on screen, binational as well as biracial people reflected on screen. And I'm just curious kind of what you think about how these things play out in other, let's say, visual media, like popular film and TV. Like if you think there's been a gain there that hasn't, the art world hasn't quite caught up to yet and what you think influences that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, there's a, was a movie recently and I can't remember the filmmaker, but it was all subtitled in English, but the two people were speaking Korean and Chinese. This is a big thing to someone who knew Korean and Chinese and someone who, so I watched the film with the soundtrack, just so I could hear the tone of the change in the two languages. That's not going to happen in an American movie. You're not going to hear two people speaking English and Spanish. You know what I mean? You're just not going to hear certain things in an American movie. You're not going to hear a whole notion of language in that way in most American movies. So that's number one. And number two, we don't really have the range of actors and actresses that we should be having in our films. And also I think film industry in other countries has really started to make great films all over Asia, all, you know, in Africa. And we still don't know many of those films, you know. We know some, two or three, four, but there's 10 or 12 or 15 more in each of these countries. So that's an issue. And I think in a way, I love the fact that, you know, this is going on in films. I've watched lots of movies and stuff like that or books. But in the art world, I don't, I think it'll change back to collectors. I think when the collector base changes racially, I think the art world begin to change racially because many museums listen to their collectors, right? They, they need the collectors to get the art they get. But do you think, I mean... I don't know if this is just a naive observation, but it does seem like in the last five years, there's been an explosion in the art world of non-white artists getting recognition of kind of finding older artists who have been overlooked and bringing them more to the fore. I mean, I don't know if there's an actual structural change, but it does seem like now it has become much more multicultural. But maybe you don't agree. No, no, I do agree. I do think it's happening more and more. And I think it's really a wonderful thing because I'm alive to see it. But I also, I suppose I have a slight skeptical side. All critics should have a slight skeptical side. So I think there's times I go, well, what about this? Well, what about that? What's missing? How's it missing? So... I just have a skepticism about it. And I'm not sure if it's even founded, but I know that it doesn't leave me. So leave it at that. Good. Well, it's yeah, I agree. It's good to be skeptical about the art world for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Critical. Yes. And I also am curious, I wonder how much, there was a 
part in the book where you, you're talking about Donald Judd and Rosalind Krauss and this idea of the avant-garde and just how narrow it is and kind of saying they make this assumption that everyone is raised in the same tradition and everyone's ideas of the avant-garde are the same. And they're not. And um, I thought, you know, I guess that's kind of obvious, but I thought it was so brilliant because, yes, when these people are held up as, you know, the definitive say, it's amazing to have someone talk back and remark that lots of people don't care about the things they care about and have a completely different reference point. How much do you think that this idea of avant-garde and making things new and innovation is still at play in contemporary art? I feel like it's, it's dropped away a little bit. It's dropped away, but then there's the notion if there was the avant-garde make it new, then there was the kind of reverse, it's all been done and it's dead. And that happens, right? The notion that painting is dead happens in the 70s strongly at the moment that America is becoming more and more aware that it's multicultural. And it's sort of like, okay, now we'll just close the door and all these people that are coming along, we'll just ignore them because they're doing something that's dead. And then I thought, wait, that's really another moment. That was another light bulb went off in my head. Wait a second, painting's dead. There are all these people that I'm starting to notice that are not getting attention. And they happen to be women and people of color. Hmm, There's something wrong with the story, right? So yeah, that I think is an issue. And also... I think, well, this this I only figured out recently because of my essay on Van Gogh and Matthew Wong is that Van Gogh was not interested in being avant-garde. In a certain year, he writes five letters to his brother saying, I want to be Japanese. And his ideal artist is a Japanese artist who's part of a community, gives his art away. He wants to see through Japanese eyes. He is influenced by the Impressionists, but he's more influenced by looking at Japanese prints. So then it occurred to me, well, maybe there are artists that are, are quote unquote original, but being avant-garde was not part of their, was not part of their desire. How do we account for that? I mean, that's just a thought I had writing this essay. It's a thought I'm going to have to pursue further. Right. Well, maybe the avant, being avant-garde isn't the end all be all of making art. I think that's, very wise. Right. I mean, I don't think Ruth Zao woke up and decided, oh, I'm going to make this sculpture this way because it's avant-garde. <laughs> the irony, too, is that the avant-garde is often looking towards other cultures and other practices and then kind of appropriating them to make right. things new, but actually they're taking from old traditions anyways. So how new is it really? If you discredit those old traditions, then they can't be woven into the larger story but they're there. Yeah, yeah, they're there. Is Donald Judd your bet noir? No, no, I actually really admire his work. I like his work a lot. I've never been to Martha, Texas, and I've decided that I have to go, that it's a destiny. No, he's not the enemy. He's just, he becomes the enemy if you think about him in a certain way. But if you kind of pull him out of, stuff. There's a lot of, he supported Ed Clark. He gave Ed Clark a show. There's certain things he did that I think don't get recognized. And I think he was not the, I mean, he also builds this museum basically in Marfa, Texas for artists that he cares about. And we might not say, oh, we like all those artists, but the fact that he 
believed in those artists enough to collect them, give them a place to have their work, John Chamberlain, John Wesley, all these people, that's a real act of generosity and love. So he's not the enemy. I think the essay that he wrote that I kind of refer to, it's one of those essays that says a lot for that moment, and it's useful, but I think then people build too much on top of it. I think in a way, I don't see him as the enemy. I'm, I'm a big fan of Donald Judd. In fact, when the Donald Judd retrospective was that moment, I get to be the voice on two of the pieces. So I'm very happy that I was asked to do that. I'm curious, John, how has your poetry and your criticism progressed doing both? How have they fed each other? Have they ever been at odds with each other? Because it seems like you've managed to publish so much criticism and many books of poetry. How have they worked together over your long career? I don't know. (laughs) I somehow managed to do both. I think one of the things I learned early on when I was writing criticism was if I had a few days off, that I would just write poetry because if I had to wait for an inspiration, three days might be task and then I'd have another deadline to So it made me think about poetry differently in terms of its sources and things like that. So, and then I think writing about art, you learn to describe things very accurately, particularly if you began writing for Art in America. And I think in a way, that helped me write poems, just the notion of a certain kind of clarity to the language, even if I was describing something that didn't exist. Yeah, so I think those, but there is a relationship, but I'm not sure quite always what it is. Do you value one more than the other? No, they're both equally important to me. I want to be able to do both well. I mean, John actually said this to me. He said, I told you you were going to get hooked on criticism. He said, I told you not to, but it was too late by then. (laughs) We're so glad you did get hooked, John. And um, thank you for coming today and speaking with us. Oh, you're welcome. That was John Yao. His new book is Please Wait by the Coat Room, Reconsidering Race and Identity in American Art. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.